I've been looking forward to standing up here because I've been so cold. And at least now I can move around and get a little warm. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be with you. Um, as a matter of fact, I thought with all the housekeeping things, we, uh, we wouldn't get started this close to time. But it's, uh, it, we're really quite, quite close to our time. Um, I was invited to uh, present the studies at this conference, at this family uh, gathering, more than a year ago. And uh, I presented a list to the, your committee, and they chose Zechariah. And uh, I'm delighted to deal with Zechariah. And I hope in your own private uh, reading you will read through the book of Zechariah, especially the first six chapters. We probably won't get beyond that because uh, that constitutes the visions of Zechariah. And we're not going to go beyond that in this conference. Um, however, since I'm a Reformed believer, I believe in the unity of the Scripture. And we really can't understand any one part of the Bible unless we see it in the grand design of God's intention to save the world, or what we call redemptive history. That's the great contribution of the Reformed faith to Christianity. You know, the tendency in, in Christendom, that strange word that include, embraces everybody who claims to be identified with the Christian tradition at all, uh, the tendency in most traditions is to chop up the Bible. Have you noticed that? Uh, liberals, of course, they're, they're, they want to remove everything that suggests a miracle or a divine intervention and make of the Bible a purely human document. And so they chop it up and some of them say, well, really, the Sermon on the Mount, that's the core of the Bible, and the rest, take it or leave it. And others say, well, maybe the Ten Commandments and this and that. And so that's what liberalism does. Uh, some evangelical Protestant traditions uh, just say, well, we're New Testament believers, and they sort of neglect the Old Testament. I remember visiting with a Baptist pastor when I was a pastor in Muskegon, Michigan, and uh, he gave me a little pamphlet, introduction to his church. And one of the very first things it said in the, in the initial statements of this pamphlet was, this church believes in the New Testament scriptures as the word of God. And I said, I said to him, well, why don't you include the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament's fulfilled its purpose. We're really New Testament believers. So they disregard that. And so it goes, chop up the Bible. The Reformed faith always emphasizes the unity of the Scripture, the harmony of the Scripture, the interrelatedness of the Scripture, and, of course, the preeminence of Jesus Christ as the peak revelational event in the light of which and in the light of whom everything else in the Bible has to be understood. And so it's my habit, this is by way of uh, justifying my approach now to you this morning, because we're not even going to look at Zechariah this morning. Uh, uh, it's my habit, therefore, to try to give an overview of the Bible. I mean, sort of a panoramic view of the Scripture so that we at least see where Zechariah fits into, into the movement of God's intention to save the world. Because in the final analysis, the Bible is the record of God's determination to redeem a lost world. 
That's the character of the Bible. And you know, uh, it was mentioned that I have, uh, I did a master's program in world religions. And that's one of the two unique characteristics of the Christian faith. You know, almost all religions have scriptures. They call them, you know, holy books or scriptures. The Tripitaka of, uh, of Buddhism and the Veda, the Vedic literature of Hinduism and the, and the Shinto uh, 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 tradition of uh, Shintoism. And so it goes. Almost all. The Quran of Islam. But none of those scriptures even claim to be an account of divine action in real history. And that's what the Bible claims to be. A record of God's activity in real human history to redeem a lost world. So even on the, on the basis of the nature of the Bible as a book, we can distinguish between it and other scriptures. And you all know the other factor that distinguishes Christianity, the Bible, from all other religions, and that is the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. Almost all religions have founders, uh, founders who got a small group of disciples together and that became the nucleus, and after the founder dies, the disciples accumulate the sayings of their, of their founder and they become the, the sacred scriptures. And in that formal way, Christianity seems to be similar, although many of the books in the Bible predate Jesus. But Jesus was not the founder of a religion. You see, all other religions that have founders, the founder is the first of that type. Mohammed was the first Muslim. Confucius was the first Confucian. Uh, Gautama was the first Buddhist. But Jesus was not the first Christian. You see, all other religions simply try to emulate or learn from the teachings of a founder who's dead and gone. And the fact that he's dead and gone doesn't matter. His truth keeps living on, like John Brown's body, you know, lies in the grave, but his truth keeps marching on. And that's why in all other religions of the world, the big question is, what did Mohammed teach? What did Gautama teach? What did Confucian teach? That's not the main question in Christianity. Now, I know, and you know, that liberalism has made that the big question in Christianity. What did Jesus teach? Not who he is. And that's why many, far too many in the Christian tradition, don't ever believe that Jesus arose from the grave like you sang after a bit, the resurrection. We, we sang about that earlier. And so they ask, what did he teach? And what they do then is make Christianity just another one of the world religions following the teaching and moral example of a founder. But Jesus was not the first Christian. As a matter of fact, Jesus was not a Christian. <laughs> Jesus wasn't a Christian. A Christian is someone who has repented of his sin and trusted Christ for redemption. <laughs> and Jesus had no sins needing confession and repentance. Jesus was not the first Christian, but he is the one by whose power Christians are made, are born again. 
And so that's all important, you know, that Jesus is the living Lord. I had a Muslim friend who um, had a lot of regard for, for Jesus. Jesus, after all, is one of the 29 prophets in Islam, you know. 26 of the 29 prophets in Islam are biblical figures, and Jesus is among them. The other three, if you're interested at all, is uh, uh, Mohammed, of course, the greatest and last in their judgment. Um, Aesop, of Aesop's fables. Yeah. And Alexander the Great. Can you imagine? Those are the 29 prophets in Islam. 26 out of the Bible, of which Jesus is the last. John, uh, John the Baptist was the second to the last, and so forth. And then they've added... Um, Alexander the Great and Aesop of Aesop's fables and Mohammed. A strange combination. But anyway, all this to say that what we have to do is look at the overview of Scripture, which means that I have to apologize already. Uh, I was asked, actually uh, approached the first time by one of your committee members, uh, Dr. McCarg. I'm sure it was much more than a year ago. Maybe he was just checking me out to see if, uh, you know, and uh, then maybe, uh, I don't know, six months ago or more, I was asked to give a, a brief skeletal outline, and so I sent that in. I guess that got in the literature. I saw it in the Benita Church when I was preaching there. They had this on the bulletin board, you know. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what I promised to do. <laughs> and then about uh, maybe two months ago, I was asked to present an expanded outline. Well, you know, if you know how these things develop, they, uh, I had a lot of this material in a file, but it wasn't organized. As a matter of fact, two of those uh, six visions we're going to look at, I had never really studied, but I knew that that was the potential. And so I put these, uh, these broad outlines together where you can write in a little. And uh, now I want to tell you that today's lecture is lecture number two. <laughs> okay, so if you don't mind a modest adjustment in the schedule here. Uh, I've just decided in the, in the last few days uh, in this meditating under a little more pressure, knowing that these days were coming, that it would be wiser to take uh, the second as the introduction and not the first. Then we'll look at the nature of prophecy, Lord willing, after our break, and then tomorrow we'll begin the actual study of Zechariah. So read uh, Zechariah chapter 1, Tomorrow, for tomorrow, will you, as your uh, sort of assignment. So let's look at the biblical time frame for Zechariah's prophecy. But even before we do that, oh, we have to be so careful about time. You know, when I got this, I was really quite happy because I looked at the schedule and I said, oh, I have an hour for the first uh, lecture and then I have an hour and a half for the second one. And I figured this all up and decided I had ten hours this week. And now I've come here and discovered that I only have eight. <laughs> because um, from 9 to 9.30, well, where was it that I thought I was... Oh, no, I was told now, yesterday, that uh, I'm supposed to be finished by 12 noon. So now, um, right, right there, we've lost uh, 30 minutes a day, but I guess we'll do without that. But, but still, we have to do our introductory work well. Uh, first of all, I want, to get, want us to get our, our perspective straight. That's just a cover. Yeah. 
What are our course objectives? If you don't mind me calling this a course of study, because obviously we're teachers, we speak of courses. What do we want to, want to happen the rest of this week, at least in these morning sessions? Well, first of all, I want you to increase in knowledge. I hope you know the Bible just a little better after these sessions this week than you did before you came. That's one of the reasons that you schedule these retreats, don't you? These conferences. So, knowledge. Secondly, understanding. Now, understanding, you know, it says stand under. That goes a little beyond knowledge, doesn't it? A knowledge is sort of an accumulation of information. But we want to have you understand as well. We want you to enrich your awareness of the truth of the, of the Bible. That is, I want you to understand the unity of the Scripture a little better. The harmony of the Scripture, how everything blends together, knits together so well, and its purpose. Its purpose, of course, is to preeminently reveal Jesus as God's redemptive answer to the lost and depraved condition of the world. And then thirdly, in all of this, we want to worship. Uh, we can't deal with the precious truths of the Bible without stopping to speak of God's worth. You know, that's what worship is. It's simply a celebration and declaration of God's worth. That's why I like that song, Thou art worthy. Maybe we ought to sing it, but uh, we don't have anybody. Thou art worthy. You know, worship comes from the old English combination words, worth-ship. In English, you know, if you add the word ship to a word, it, it, it really indicates a high regard, like courtship. Huh? That's high regard for a court. No, well... <laughs> no. But you know, that, that pleasant time that should really continue well beyond and even be enriched after uh, the wedding day, but that time, that especially exhilarating time of courting uh, someone you love, courtship or friendship, that's intense regard for a friend. And there are many other uh, words that end with uh, ship that indicate, well, worth-ship has in English come to be joined together in worship. But we want to declare and recognize and celebrate the great worth of God, to recognize who He is, declare what He has done, and in the process, honor and praise and thank Him. So those are our course objectives. And uh, to the extent that that's accomplished, uh, we will have fulfilled our purpose. Well, now, a brief uh, overview of the whole Bible. I know I'm uh, standing before a group of people who know a great deal about the Bible. And if we gave you an exam on the Bible content, you'd score rather high. You know the stories of the Bible. Many of us have been taught from our mother's knees. Others have been Christians. Uh, someone mentioned the other day when we met a uh, Christian in, I think, three years. And some of you uh, may be even younger in the faith or older in the faith. And yet, no matter how much we know about the content of Scripture, there's that other dimension, and that is the relationship of the truth in the Bible to, it, to each other, that great contribution of the Reformed faith. We speak of biblical theology and systematic theology. Systematic theology is advanced catechism, you know. It's, uh, well, it's uh, 
a view of the, the wholeness of truth, but it's sort of lifted up out of the historical context of the Bible. Biblical theology recognizes the movement uh, in the scripture, the interrelatedness of the scripture, the development of the themes of the scripture, and that's uh, the perspective that I want to present this morning. First of all, I want to show you um, a little thing that I prepared some time ago and now appears in print, and I noticed that it's in one of the books on the shelf over there. Uh, this is the sort of a logo that suggests, is that quite clear to you, everyone? Uh, the, the, the total panorama, is that a little better? Okay. I have a bigger one. Maybe I better use that a bit. But let's begin with this. Uh, this simply demonstrates how the Bible begins on a universal note. The very first statement in the Scripture, in the beginning. Hey, that's as far back as you can go. You can't use language to describe anything that goes back further than that. In the beginning, God. That's as supreme as you can go, as any language can indicate. Created. That indicates the absolute original beginning. The heavens and the earth which is language to describe everything that exists. So the Bible begins with a statement that embraces absolutely all existence, God and that which he has made. And then the Bible also ends on a universal note, but its universality has to do with the application of salvation to all races and tribes and peoples and tongues in the world. It's not universal salvation, but it, it does indicate God's concern for the entire variety in, human, in the human race. That uh, no one nationality group or racial group can claim to be God's pampered favorites. <laughs> that, that, God's, that the, God intends his gospel to reach the world, all nations. So you have this universal concern that the gospel be spread throughout the world as the, as the culmination of the Bible and universal creation at the beginning. So it begins on a universal note, ends on a universal note. In between, the Bible uh, has what I have described here as a, a sort of a funnel effect because it begins with Abraham who embraces all the human family, and then Noah, also sort of a, 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 a new beginning to, a, to the human family. And then the Bible narrows its concern to Abraham's descendants, which are his nations. He's the father of many nations. At the time of Moses, to just one nation, people of Israel. At the time of David, uh, to one tribe, the tribe of Judah after the return from captivity, to just a remnant, you see. And finally, it focuses its attention on the person of Jesus. So it, uh, the Bible uh, it focuses its primary concern on an increasingly narrow proportion of the human family. 
until, of course, the light of all revelation shines on just one, the person of Jesus. And then after Jesus ascends to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit, then you have this spread out effect again uh, into all the nations. So I want to cover that uh, briefly, maybe take a half hour or so to show how that develops. So let's begin. This one is a little bigger and a little more colorful, so let's try to use that. Um, The Bible, we said, begins with Adam and creation. Adam, of course, represents the whole human family. Adam in Hebrew literally means, stands for humanity, the, the entire human race. So we can't speak of nationality when you uh, reflect, when you speak of Adam. That's the whole human family. I know every nation group, every uh, racial group uh, that wants to identify with Adam makes him look like themselves. Uh, We once had a calendar from some Korean students and they had uh, pictures, uh, you know, paintings for each month of the year. And the very first one was a Garden of Eden. And sure enough, Adam and Eve looked Korean. Huh? Well, that's fine. That's fine because the Korean people were caught up into Adam too. And uh, this should be the case with everyone. So we can't really speak of uh, nationality uh, with regard to Adam. So I don't know what nationality Adam was. But I, I know one thing. Adam was not Dutch. <laughs> uh, he was not Dutch. And, and, and if you wonder why I know he wasn't Dutch, You see, Adam took advice from his wife. (laughs) I've never met a Dutchman who took his wife advice. Well, so the so Adam represents humanity, and and God is dealing with the entire human race when He's dealing with Adam and Eve, and that's why when Adam and Eve disobeyed and fell into sin. The entire human race fell because a corrupt origin only produces corrupt fruit. And that, of course, necessitated the coming of the Savior of the world. So in those early chapters of Genesis, uh, you have this broad concern of God for all humanity, including nature, because by the time you get to Noah, uh, you have the flood, and we sometimes speak of that as the covenant of nature, at least that stage of the covenant relationship between God and mankind, uh, embraces all nature and God promises that uh, nature will never be destroyed with a catastrophic flood of the dimensions of the original flood. But you have all of that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. Now, we can't date those events. I know there are a lot of books that do. Uh, Harold Camping has come out with a book called Adam? When? And in that book he says that Adam and Eve were created 11,004 B.C. And he has his calculations. Well, I find it fascinating to read him. uh, But, uh, you know, we can't judge that. And, of course, you know that in the 19th century, Bishop Usher made the same calculations and said Adam was created in 4004 B.C. Uh, It's not very fruitful to try to do that because we simply can't... The Bible doesn't give us references 
that can be pieced together so that we know exactly when Adam and Adam lived and know when the flood took place. Harold Camping says the flood took place in 4995 BC. Well, it may have. There is some evidence for a massive uh, sediment layer in the South Mesopotamian Valley that's uh, dated by archaeologists prior to 3700. So 4995 is prior to 3700, if that is the evidence. So, but those are all speculative. So we move on um, to the next stage. We come to uh, Abraham. I mean, excuse me. Yes, Abraham, there he is. Uh, Adam is early on, and uh, I just couldn't get him on here. So you come to Abraham. Well, with Abraham, we can date Abraham rather carefully. Uh, we have 2000 B.C. here. Abraham was born using biblical references now. Uh, 2167 B.C. Plus or minus four to six years. Because, you see... In the ancient world, they told dates by the, the, the reigns of kings. And if a king happened to die in August, they started a new year when he died. And so it was the first year of the next king, the second year of the next king. And kings had a way of not conveniently dying on December 31. <laughs> so so there, was, there was overlap all the time. And so we, but we can be rather certain within four to six years, uh, so Abraham, uh, uh, if you use the biblical dating, and that gets to be far too detailed, but if some of you are interested in that privately, I can show you how from the scripture, especially dating back from the founding of Solomon's temple and using only biblical references, we can date the Exodus and the birth year of Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. But uh, anyway, just take my word for that. But Somehow, the Bible does want us to know approximately when Abraham lived. And he lived, as a matter of fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all alive and up and taking nourishment in the year 2000 B.C. Uh, Abraham was uh, about 167 in 2000 B.C. His son Isaac was about 67. And his grandson Jacob was about 15 years old. So that's a nice round figure. Besides, it's nice for us now because you can tell your Sunday school and catechism classes if you talk about Abraham that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived prior to Jesus' birth almost exactly the time that we now exist after Jesus' birth. So it's a very neat 2,000 down to zero up to 2,000 again. But let's move on. Incidentally, uh, one of the reasons why Revelation becomes so specific with Abraham is because for the first time there is a sacramental sign of God's ownership. That is, a relationship of covenant with God, and that's circumcision. So with Abraham, you have the first sacrament in the Bible. Um, and uh, worship, therefore, and the relationship between God and his people becomes confirmed in a, in a very concrete way through the sacrament of circumcision. But then for about 500 years, the people of God had to live by the truth that was known up to and including Abraham. It's interesting that there's a lot of history between Abraham and Moses, but nothing new as far as the worship and belief life of the people of God 
uh, are concerned. That is, there seems to be a 500-year period there from Abraham to Moses where people simply lived in the awareness of the truth revealed up to and including Abraham. But then with Moses, about 1500 B.C., you have a new peak event in the Bible, a new epoch. Well, that's the first time I've used that word. Uh, a new epoch. Uh, the you know, Reformed view of Scripture, at least uh, for the most part, has an epochal view of the Bible, uh, not a dispensational view. Uh, different epochs or eras of history continuing the same covenantal stream, not a new dispensation that has a new way of salvation and a new way of relating to the Lord. So with Moses, you have the Mosaic epoch. And interestingly, with Moses, uh, the Passover is added. And the uniqueness of the Sabbath. I wish sometime I could uh, uh, go into more detail with you on, on things like that. But God seems to add, after 500 years in which they celebrated like Abraham did, with sacrifice, which began all the way in, in Eden, you know. Sacrifice is very early on. And then uh, circumcision, a mark of God's ownership, a relationship. And now Passover and the Sabbath are added at the time of Moses. And of course, then you have the law, uh, rather uh, clearly defined, the, the moral, ceremonial, and civil law. So obviously with Moses, that's a, that's a juncture in human history and also in revelational history. Also, instead of a, an, a, addressing the nations, now, with Moses, we're down to one nation. You know, God says to Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations. But unfortunately, most of Abraham's descendants uh, disregarded the covenant and uh, only one son was faithful out of uh, eight. Abraham made eight sons, didn't he? Yeah, I'm sure he did. Ishmael, Isaac, and then remember, Sarah died, and Abram was only 127 years old, so he hadn't lost his vitality, and he married Keturah, Genesis 25, and it says she had six sons. And of all, you know, you know where the Arabs come from. Most of them are descendants of Abraham through Keturah, and of course some are through through Ishmael through Hagar. And I often thought, if Abram had been content with just one wife, Sarah, we wouldn't have these problems in the Middle East today. <laughs> because really it's the descendants of Abram who are fighting each other. All the Arabs can trace their origin to Abram. All the Egyptians. Hagar was an Egyptian lady, remember. And they're proud of that. They're proud of that. And that's why uh, we have to be very careful when we hear these radio preachers say, of course the Israel, Israeli should have all of Palestine because God promised it to Abraham. Well, if he promised it to Abraham, the Arabs have a stake in it too, you see. So it isn't quite as simple as sometimes looks on the surface. But unfortunately, most of Abraham's descendants drifted away. Ishmael did, broke covenant. All the six sons of Keturah did, only Isaac. And that's why we have this funnel narrowing, you see. Just Isaac. Isaac has 12 sons. And by the time of Moses, it seems that those 12 tribes at least are faithful. So we have a nation of 12 tribes, right? 
But unfortunately, during the period of the judges, they become more and more unfaithful so that by the time of David, you're down to one tribe, Judah. Oh, I know, the, the nation was still united for a few years after David, up until 931. Uh, David uh, became king in 1007 B.C. And uh, his son Solomon became king in 971 B.C. And Solomon died and Rehoboam became king of Judah in 931. And then the ten northern tribes, you know, went with Jeroboam. And so the split actually comes historically in 931. But, but... From a faith point of view, the ten tribes have become pagan. Only one tribe left to be God's agents for the salvation of the world. God's faithful covenant people through whom the Savior of the world would come. So we move on. At the time of David, the prophetic epoch begins. So we've had the Adamic epoch, the Noahic epoch, the Abrahamic epoch, the Mosaic epoch, and with, at the time of David, uh, uh, Samuel becomes the first of the prophets in the prophetic epoch. And uh, with the prophetic epoch, we just have one tribe, the tribe of Judah, as the agency through which God's uh, saving concern for the world would be continued. But then history goes on, and now we're getting close to Zechariah, aren't we? Because now the prophetic epoch that's the one I want you to know most about, breezing across the previous thousands of years of history rather rapidly. Uh, the prophetic epoch begins at the time of David and continues till the time of Jesus. So that's really a thousand years. So here we have 500 years from Abraham to Moses, 500 from Moses to David, or the prophetic epoch. But now we have a full thousand years from... Samuel, or the David is the prominent figure, to Christ. However, right straight in the middle of that prophetic epoch is the restoration of the temple after the exile. So I think the 500-year cycle still continues. Those of you who are familiar with Gerhardus Voss uh, know that this is really um, Gerhardus Voss, except that this, I am more indebted to Gerhardus Voss than any. And Gerhardus Voss, Westminster Seminary, main, still is, uh, well, it's the... Gerhardus Voss is alive and well in Westminster Seminary, and I wish he were... He, he's, been, he's been with the Lord for years, of course, but his teachings uh, are still uh, very, very uh, much appreciated and taught among us, and I wish other Reformed seminaries would do so um, but Gerhardus Voss does not talk about these 500-year cycles. Uh, that's my own sort of imposition. But uh, this has really been the uh, inspiration for my understanding of the, of the nature of the Scripture, uh, Gerhardus Voss. And in the process of studying him, uh, I came to this obvious, I think, recognition that there are clearly defined 500-year uh, gaps between peak revelational events. And uh, since we have to be consistent, I think the prophetic epoch has this tremendous um, event called
called the restoration of the temple after the captivity, writes flat in the middle, so the 500-year cycle uh, still seems to hold rather well. But, but the prophetic epoch does continue throughout the whole 1,000 years. Now, I have added some things here, you see, from universal to nations to nation to tribe, and finally to remnant, which I didn't have any room for, and then tried to show the division here, that would be 931, and then Israel finally goes into captivity in, to, to Assyria, which is today northern Iraq and uh, western Syria, in 721 B.C. They never came back, not as an organized group anyway. Judah continues to about 607 and then goes into captivity in Babylon. Here you have Assyria 721, Babylon 607. These are all plus or minus four years, remember. And they return in the year 537 B.C., the return from captivity, but just a small remnant. It's variously estimated that about a million people in Judah went into captivity to Babylon in three stages, 607, 597, 587. Only 40,000, you can read that in Ezra, actually 40, 43,000 uh, returned approximately. That's only 4% of the number that went into captivity. And of course, that 4%, most of them were born in captivity. There were a few old folks who were uh, old enough yet to have gone into captivity when, say, they were 10, and now they were 60. That's the youngest a person could be if that person were 10 going into captivity and returning in 537. Because the third stage, or the captivity is three, there were three uh, exilic groups and the last one was 587 with the destruction of Jerusalem and if a person were 10 years old in 587 he could be 60 or she could be 60 when uh, to participate in the return from captivity in uh, 537 we'll go into a little more detail because that's where Zechariah fits folks that's where he fits into the revelational pattern and we're going to understand Zechariah better simply because we're going to see where his servanthood as a prophet of the Lord fit into the grand design of God's determination to save the world. Then, of course, the conclusion of this prophetic epoch is John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of our Lord Jesus, and um, which inaugurates what we call the apostolic epoch the apostolic epoch, which is, of course, the New Testament and that which follows thereafter. Now, there are some valuable factors. Oh, incidentally, I did want to say, if you really want to understand the, uh, the unity of the Scripture and the interrelatedness of the Scripture, uh, Gerhardus Voss is the best there is. And I asked uh, the colleagues to make sure Gerhardus Voss was part of the offerings on this table. Now, uh, Gerhardus Voss is not easy to read. I know many of you are Bible students who can handle him, but he does dialogue with the, the theologians, especially the German theologians of his era. You know, he was a professor from 1892 to 1939. And uh, if you can't handle that, that's okay, because someone has uh, conveniently written 
a much more simplified introduction to uh, <laughs> biblical theology. And this was my attempt to try, you can see the logo on the front, uh, my attempt to uh, provide for an adult, intelligent adult believer an introduction to biblical theology. And lo and behold, look what's in here. The, the, and so I asked the Cullies also to make sure this happened to be there too. Uh, so anyway, uh, if you would like to, you, to see an elaboration of what I've just covered, uh, that's in here in an eight-chapter uh, uh, book. And I noticed that uh, the evangelical bookstore has significantly discounted it for you. I doubt if you can get it cheaper anywhere else. So anyway, so much for that. <clears throat> Um, the value of this kind of a view uh, really can be can be extended uh, a great deal. For instance, I thought I had a transparency here that oh yes, yeah, I I did this in a whole lot of different fashions while I was a teacher at Trinity. But for instance. If you have this kind of a, a, a mental image, uh, all the books of the Bible, you know exactly where they fit. For instance, Job, that's probably the earliest book in the Bible. That goes back to the patriarchal epoch, uh, probably the Abra Abrahamic epoch, maybe even the Noahic epoch, and that's why I've got that in brackets, because that one's hard to pin down. But then you know that these are the books that were written in, during the Mosaic epoch. Genesis, Exodus, of course, Genesis talks about the Adamic, Noahic, and Abrahamic, and Mosaic epoch. But it was written during the Mosaic epoch. Genesis, Exodus, these five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel. They fit into this 500-year bracket. So if you have this kind of an understanding, whenever you're studying a book in the Bible, you have an idea where it fits into the, into the movement of redemptive history. And, of course, these are the books in the Bible that were written during the prophetic epoch. Kings, Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, all of, all of the prophets, well, almost all the prophets, were written in the first 500 years or the prior to the exile and the restoration of the temple. And these prophets were written after the exile. And that's where Haggai, Zechariah fits. Already, you know... The time doesn't get to me first. I have a chart like this that spreads out this piece of history right here and shows where Zechariah fits. And Malachi and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, of course, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are history books, not prophetic books, but they fit into this post-exilic time frame. Uh, you know, I read commentaries on the book of Esther and... Uh, uh, some of them, you know, say, wonder even if the Bi it belongs in the Bible because the name God is never mentioned. But if you know where it fits in biblical history, you soon see that, it, that there's a direct relationship to, to God's redemptive plan and what happens and is recorded at the, uh, at the time of, that the book of Esther was written. And then, of course, the apostolic epoch, all the New Testament books fit there. So that's just one example of how helpful this kind of a design can be. 
And also, we're going to say um, in our second hour today, when we talk about the nature of prophecy, we're going to say that the essential nature of prophecy is not so much to predict the future, but to understand what's happening now. <laughs> now, for Zechariah was, you know, 500 B.C. And now for us is now. So uh, wherever the prophet speaks, he really, his primary in, in interest is to interpret God's will for that particular time period. So if you have this kind of a panoramic view of God's purposes in the Bible, it helps us understand what's going on in our day too. As a matter of fact, if you don't mind my speculating for just a few minutes yet, uh, after literally years, I started with just a line, and a timeline we called it in freshman theology at Trinity, and then kept elaborating it. And uh, you'll notice that even this is an earlier one from the one I, I presented earlier because this one doesn't have a little uh, center section because I decided that after all, not everybody who was part of the nation of Israel was really faithful to the covenant. And uh, so we had to have something indicating that remnant that who were faithful to the covenant. We speak of the covenant as, uh, as the brother suggested, chandelier. Um, this is a true story, however. Not everything I said before was true, I guess. <laughs> um, and if I've uh, not clearly defined where I've just been sort of trying to establish some kind of a Christian historical perspective and what is revelational. I'm sorry if I confuse some of those lines because I firmly believe only what's biblical is authoritative. But I think sometimes we can discuss together and try to understand what God is doing today. But uh, uh, Reverend Loveless was a commentator on WMBI Chicago for years and years. A very lovable man, but his name was Loveless and spelled that way too. And uh, he was asked by a rather large church in Chicago to lead a women's Bible study group for a period of months on the epistles, the Pauline epistles. And so he thought he would begin the discussion simply by uh, introducing what, a, what an epistle is. So he asked the ladies, he said, uh, what is an epistle? And nobody seemed ready to respond until one lady finally said, well, um, aren't the epistles the wives of the apostles? <laughs> Well, he had, he had a little trouble maintaining his composure, you know. And uh, finally he said, no, uh, the epistles were not the wives of the apostles. Well, then, said another lady, if they weren't the apostles' wives, then whose wives were they? <laughs> so that reminds you know, epistles. A senior citizen, there are various ways to discover if you are. But if they're out uh, playing volleyball or basketball, then they aren't. Aren't they? Uh. Uh, I hope my wife isn't too embarrassed about this, but I, I bought one of these coupon books this past year, and I've used them all up already. So now you know I'm over 62. And I wanted a coupon book for my wife. And I assumed, like, uh, my, Denny's restaurant, you only have to be 55, right? And most places, it's 60. So I said I'd like a coupon book for my wife, too. Well, he said, how old is she? And I said, 61. Well, he said, she doesn't qualify. Well, I was thinking a little fast that day. I don't always do. And I thought, uh, hey, wait a minute. I believe that life begins at conception, and from conception she's already 62. <laughs> but they wouldn't accept that. <laughs> but now she is. 
as of last Thursday. Friday? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, if uh, if you find me looking around for a different place to stay tonight, you'll know I, you'll know I didn't. Uh, well. No, I tell you, the, uh, very, very seriously, uh, I lost a brother. He was a pastor of a church for 24 years in Grand Rapids. Uh, lost a brother last year, younger brother, died of cancer. And uh, I don't mind telling people I'm going to be 64 next month anymore because I just say, you know, what a blessing to uh, be allowed to continue your ministry and your work in God's world and be thankful. The alternative is really not that pleasant to contemplate, except that the believer always has that hope, of course. So, uh, in the Lord's good time, that that's soon enough. Well, let's get back to our little logo. Now, uh, to demonstrate again how... yeah, I, I'm almost sorry I rushed through that thing and... Uh, made some uh, additional comments that uh, maybe weren't that terribly relevant. But I wanted you to see the marvelous panorama of God's redemptive purpose. And if this helps, I hope uh, it's some value at all. But here's another value. You can take, and obviously I used to do this for freshman theology at, at Trinity often enough, you could take any piece of these, any epoch, and spread it out. And I have about uh, 35 uh, color transparencies I'm not going to bore you with, uh, which, uh, which takes each of these epochs. In fact, Dr. McHarg will remember we did this. That's what we did at the conference in the Northern Presbytery uh, two years ago. And we took each of these epochs and spread it out so we saw the distinctive char characteristics within each epoch. Well, that's not our purpose now, but I would like you to see how Zechariah fits in to this whole pattern. This is a better way to do it, I guess. Now, as we said, this is part, this is the prophetic epoch. Now, what's the nature of the prophetic epoch? Well, simply the prophets were the carriers of the revelation during the prophetic epoch. Uh, the, the previous epoch, the believing community, covenant community, lived by the laws of Moses, the books of Moses, and Moses was the primary channel through which God revealed his truth for that epoch. Abraham was the primary agent uh, through whom God introduced the structure of the faith for that epoch. That's what we're, we talk about epochs. In the, now, the, the prophets were the primary carriers of the revelation during the prophetic epoch. Not the kings, not the priests. The kings were supposed to live by the truth as proclaimed by the prophets. And that's why the prophets, uh, at least the faithful ones, were not afraid of kings. Nathan was not afraid of David. He went right to David's palace and convicted him of sin, the sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, right? That was the role of the prophets, to declare the word and will of the Lord. Let the chips fall where they may. The priests, the priests were the functionaries. Very important, but they had to have the morning and evening sacrifices. Uh, they had to instruct the kids in the catechism, you know. Uh, they had to keep the festival days. 
they had to maintain the the uh, the ceremonial uh, laws and uh, function in all of those capacities, uh, but the prophets were God's spokesmen, spokespersons. You see, now so that's the prophetic epoch. Now, the the early prophets are probably the best known among us. Elijah and Elisha, ninth century prophets. They, we don't have any books in the Bible named Elijah and Elisha, but we have a lot of quotations. And uh, that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit to, uh, in the Kings and the Chronicles. To, uh, after all, um, Nathan, we don't have a book in the Bible named Nathan either, do we? But we have the story of Nathan and David preserved by the Holy Spirit, incorporated in the sacred scriptures, so they were the carriers of the revelation. Elijah and Elisha, 9th century. Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, 8th century. And others, of course. Uh, Then you have 7th century prophets. You have 6th century prophets. What we're dealing with here is, is Zechariah, who falls into the period from the captivity and, of course, till the time of his death somewhere in between there. Now, if you want to understand the nature of this period, then you have to recognize that the captivity takes place in 607, roughly speaking. I know the, the, some of the handbooks say 604, 605. That's okay because uh, we can't be exact, but that's close enough to understand that's the time of the period. Daniel was a young man who went into captivity in probably the second uh, deportation. That would be 597. And that's why in uh, 522, he's still busy as a prophet. He's getting to be a pretty old man by that time, but he's still busy as a prophet. Ezekiel. Ezekiel went into captivity. Uh, He was a prophet. And he went into captivity with the exiles from Jerusalem, from Judea. Um, And, of course, Daniel and Ezekiel never returned. Neither of them returned from captivity, but Daniel is still active back in Persia. Uh, The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and uh, Daniel uh, was an advisor to both the the Chaldeans, or Babylonians, and the Persians. So he stayed. He did not return with the returnees into captivity. But there were some prophets there. Haggai is one example. And Zechariah, we don't know their origin. They likely were born in captivity. And they became prophets in captivity. And they returned with the exiles from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem. Now that's very important for us to understand. When you read the book of Zechariah now, you're reading the, uh, what was written under the Holy Spirit's guidance, by a prophet who returned with the people from captivity. So he really knew what it was like to be a captive, and now he's part of the restoration. Uh, Esther fits into this pattern. These dates are really quite uh, approximating. We should have little C's behind them, because C means kirka, and in Latin means about. (laughs) So uh, <clears throat> don't hold me uh, too, hard, uh, too rigidly to 480, but approximately 480, because after all, she was the, the, the wife of the 
emperor of Persia. Uh, remember, he, he, his first wife was uh, somewhat insubordinate, and so he got rid of her. <laughs> and, uh, and he had a uh, Miss Persia contest, <laughs> and Esther won it, and he married her, but that was, turned out to be all in God's providence. So she was in captivity, never returned from captivity. And then Ezra uh, came much later. Ezra was not part of the... He, of course, is, uh, stayed in the foreign land, land of captivity, and he led a group much later. There are actually three return, returnings from exile, just as there were three uh, groups going into exile. Each of those early ones were about 10 years apart, and the returnees were farther apart than that. So Ezra is, is about 460, and then Nehemiah, 445, and Malachi, the last one, approximately 430. And then we have what we call revelational silence. But so, so that sort of characterizes the major events and personalities during this, uh, this period of the Mosaic Epoch. Now I've got here Babylonian captivity 607 to 537 and a remnant returns in 537. The Bible keeps uh, speaking of the 70 years captivity. Jeremiah prophesied that it would be 70 years and uh, Daniel observes that that was the prophecy of Jeremiah and therefore he had great hopes that it would happen very soon because he had counted up the years. He knew when that was happening. Um, and uh, one can count from 607 to 537, and that's exactly 70 years. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I've just arbitrarily taken 607, because we can't identify that date so exactly. But uh, uh, the true captivity was a spiritual captivity, and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 587. And it so happens that from the temple and city destruction of 587 to the restoration of the temple in 517 was 70 years. So whether the 70 years uh, is to be dated from the very first uh, group that went into exile to the very first group that returned or whether it should be dated from the destruction of the temple to its restoration, it's... Uh, is somewhat of a, a problem. I think the latter is probably more likely. And that will show up as we look at these first chapters in Zechariah as well. Uh, so this, the, the spiritual dimension of the captivity, in other words, the cessation of temple worship was 70 years. And that was a very uh, significant factor. Now, uh, just a little more history and then we'll look at the nature of prophecy. I hope you don't mind if I get a little behind because I do think we'll have more time later in the week that we won't need quite as much time to cover some of the visions that we're going to look at. So we'll catch up later. And after all, this kind of a conference is a more casual kind of a environment. So I hope you don't mind if I don't quite finish this piece of it this time and pick it up uh, tomorrow and move on from there. All those who uh, would object, would you please stand up and leave? <laughs> okay. But I want to accentuate the marvelous providence of the Lord in all of this. 
The Chaldeans were a powerful force. Remember, it was they who overthrew the Assyrians. That that territory of the world, in fact, the entire Middle East, was dominated by Assyria. As a matter of fact, if you look at a map prior to the captivity of uh, the Middle East, from Egypt to what is now Iran, and all the way into Turkey and southern Russia, it just says Assyria, except for that little area called Judea and Jerusalem. And that, of course, is Hezekiah's kingship. Remember uh, how, how the Lord protected Hezekiah. He prayed so sincerely, and the Lord destroyed the Assyrian army outside of Jerusalem. And you say, well, how in the world could the most powerful force in the world, by comparison, the United States is relatively weak in relationship to the rest of the world. If the whole rest of the world ganged up on us, I don't think we could prevail. But Assyria could prevail against the whole civilized world at the time. And yet the Lord preserved Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the faithful one, faithful king, uh, though also the one who prayed and 15 years was granted, 15 additional years. I heard a very interesting, well, maybe I shouldn't theorize again, <laughs> Heard Billy Graham uh, Sunday, early Sunday morning. And, or was it in the car somewhere? We were driving along somewhere. Traveled so much last week I kind of lost my moorings. And he was talking about wicked King Manasseh. He said he was the most wicked king in all human history. More wicked than Hitler, more wicked than Stalin, and any of the others. Well, that's his opinion, but whatever. But it is true, Manasseh was a terribly wicked king. Probably the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. And Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is one of these paragons of loyalty, like Josiah and David. And uh, Billy Graham said that Hezekiah probably shouldn't have prayed for those extra 15 years because it was during those, la those 15 years that Manasseh was born who became the king for the longest king in all biblical history. Fifty-five years he was king of Judah. And he was thoroughly wicked. Thoroughly wicked. Well, that was, uh, that was of course, following Hezekiah's God-inspired triumph over Assyria. Hezekiah didn't even have to fight. Of course, the angel of death went through the camp. 185,000 or so. Uh, died, and the rest of the Assyrians went back. So powerful was Assyria that it looked as though they, could, they would go on for a millennia. But in God's providence, the Chaldeans, we, we sometimes call them Babylonians, that's because their capital city was Babylon, but they really were Chaldeans. The Chaldeans conquered the Assyrians. Of course, the Assyrians became corrupted from within. That's what happens to nations. And the Chaldeans become this powerful force that conquered most, not all, but most of what the Assyrians had conquered, plus Judea, because it's the Chaldeans, under first Nabopolassar, and who conquered northern Palestine, and then he died, and his son Nebuchadnezzar finished the job. So Nebuchadnezzar gets all the credit for, for taking Jerusalem. Uh, and so you see, you have this powerful force, and they had only been in, in, in being for, well, 
not even a hundred years. And uh, yet the prophets said, look, uh, Judea will be reestablished. It almost seemed impossible. As a matter of fact, when uh, Daniel begins to pray, uh, he, it, the implication is that they're, they're coming on to 70 years. And when is it going to happen? Well, it happened. In 539, uh, Cyrus and Darius, the Medes and the Persians, conquered the Chaldeans. And lo and behold, a year later, in 538, Cyrus declares that all the enslaved peoples that the Chaldeans had taken captive and settled now in their, con in their homeland and made slaves to build their cities and, and the like could now go back to their land of origin. Well, not very many went back, proportionately, but some did, as we observed a little earlier today. And so a year later, 537, the captivity, the, the, the first return group from captivity comes to settle Jerusalem. And uh, Haggai and Zechariah were prophets among these returned exiles. Uh, so much for uh, this uh, uh, historical background. Now let's follow the outline just a little more closely. What is the nature of a prophet? I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. And uh, I was a little surprised that it said verses 1 to 6 because in my notes it says verses 1 to 36. So then I checked the uh, material that I had sent in to be printed here and discovered that the mistake was mine. That on that particular sheet that I mailed off and I Xeroxed the copy so I knew what I sent, I put 1 to 6. It should have been 1 to 36. Uh, we're going to look at this passage simply because it helps us understand the nature of a prophet, both a false prophet and a true prophet of the Lord. A false prophet of pagan gods and a true prophet of the Lord. So let's turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 36. 1 Kings chapter 22. And is that what I said to begin with? Oh, it's chapter 22. Okay. The word of the Lord is follows. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. Aram is another name for Syria. You think times have changed? This is uh, so many years B.C., 700 years B.C., and now Syria and Israel are still at war. 3,700 years later. But for three years there was no war. Remarkable. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. It says down, but he really went north. <laughs> we would say up, I guess, up north. He went to Samaria. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? Ramoth Gilead is rather close to what we now call the Golan Heights. Not quite a perfect overlap, but it's not far. So not only is Syria and Israel still at war, but they're fighting over the same territory. Yeah. So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. I'm with you. 
100%. That means, my people is your people. My horses as your horses. Horses were the symbol of battle, you know. It's about the only good use they had of horses. Uh, They couldn't plow with them. They they had to use donkeys and things like that, mule-like animals. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. Well, that's good advice. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets. Because the prophets are spokesmen for God, right? Or gods, false gods. About 400 men and asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Now, if you read a couple chapters earlier than this, there were 400 prophets also. And one prophet of the Lord at Mount Hermon. Remember? And those 400 were slain. So apparently Ahab and Jezebel got 400 others. They still have 400 prophets. Or more than that. You see? So he says to the prophets, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord? Not a prophet of Baal. All those 400 prophets, prophets of Baal. But they were still prophets. They were false prophets. They were still spokespersons for their God. That's the nature of a prophet. Is there not a prophet of the Lord whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel, that's Ahab, remember, answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlaw. <laughs> We're going to see what, how that demonstrates what a prophet is, a true prophet is. <coughs> The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, had made iron horns and he declared... This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. Prophets sometimes acted out their, uh, their, their lessons, you know. We have some preachers like that too, don't we? Yeah. And it's good if it doesn't detract from the message. I think we have to be very careful in our forms, you know, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in our methods of worship uh, can only be justified if they if they don't attract attention to themselves, but attract attention to the Lord, we would see Jesus. Well, anyway, that was, that's what Zedekiah did. And horns, of course, are always symbols of power, destructive power. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one, unanimous, 
The other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I will tell him only what the Lord tells me. Nature of a true prophet speaks only the truth. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now, how do we understand that? Well, apparently, you see, Micaiah was using the kind of language we sometimes do. I mean, you have a, you, you have a, you know, a teenager who says, I want to, well, like my mother always said, I always like to swim in a quarry. It was such clear, cold, deep water, jagged walls. They took, you know, they took rock out of that to make concrete, you know, and we, we love to go there. And, and, but there was at least one drowning every summer because there were sight of ledges. You go down too deep, you come up and hit your head on a ledge and one thing or another. And so my mother made us promise we wouldn't go to the quarry. We'd nag her. Yeah, go to the quarry. I like to swim in the quarry. And sometimes she would say, go ahead, you'll have a good time, go ahead. But we knew what she really meant was, you're going you're gonna to get it. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that's the way Micaiah was talking here. He said, he said, oh, yes, be victorious. And so Ahab could see in his demeanor that he meant the very opposite. And that's confirmed by the next verse, isn't it? Because Micaiah becomes serious. Verse 17, then Micaiah answered, I, now, now there's a burden in his voice. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. That means the, the general of the army or the commander-in-chief, which is the king, gone. These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. And now the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me but only bad? You see, Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right hand and on his left. Now this is a parable to teach a truth that he wants to bring across. And the Lord said, Who will lure Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will lure him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in luring him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit come? The spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, You will find out on the day you go to hide in the inner room. Which means Zedekiah is going to run in fear. Well, the story goes on and you know, 
he goes to war and Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, you dress up in your kingly garments and put your crown on your head and ride in a big chariot in, in the battle and I'll disguise myself as a PFC, private first class. And Jehoshaphat, naive guy that he is, does it! And, you know, and these Syrian hosts, they see the king. They say, there he is, there he is. Let's go get him. And Joshua says, I'm not the one. Here's the one. You know, you know, and Joshua barely escaped with his life. But Ahab, meanwhile, thinks he's safe. And someone shoots an arrow into the air. And it pierced right between where the armor comes together and Ahab died. So the prophet, the true prophet's message uh, finally was realized. Now, what does this tell us? Well, this tells us that there are varieties of prophets, doesn't it? There are what we call canonical prophets. Uh, these, this is somewhat of a systematic theological distinction, but it's helpful. You know, a canonical prophet is a prophet whose teaching becomes part of the canon of Scripture. Now, this is a canon with a single end. Well, I mean, only one end at a time. A double end, you know, that's like a houtzer, you know, a canon, boom, boom. It's not that. A canon, which means authoritative teaching. So we have, a, have prophets whose, whose pronouncements are authoritative, revelational teaching. And that's the case with a person like Micaiah, although he didn't write a book, he's quoted here, and so that's historical. Uh, authoritative teaching. Isaiah is, Jeremiah is, and all of these uh, prophets. Now, there are also non-canonical prophets. There are true prophets in the Bible uh, who never really write anything that becomes part of sacred scripture, and yet they are prophets of the Lord. And uh, there are many examples of this, and I'm so conscious now of uh, time, but uh, we read, for instance, sometimes of the sons of the prophets, or you have, uh, well, I looked it up and I didn't write it down. I think it's in the second chapter of Kings where it speaks of, uh, of prophets prophesying. It doesn't tell us what they said. Uh, well, I better not make that reference because I didn't write it down. But we have, we have references to prophets, uh, sons of the prophets. They probably uh, were sort of a, a seminary students with the true prophet. And they did much of the work that was expected of prophets. One or two prophets who were prominent prophets in the land couldn't handle everything. So you have non-canonical prophets. Uh, they're faithful and true, and yet uh, nothing... We don't have any record in the, in, in the providence of God. We don't have record of what they said or taught. And so they don't, are not part of the authoritative teaching. And then you have false prophets. And Micaiah, or excuse me, Zedekiah in this case, that's not the person who we will see a little later was the last king of Judah. It's spelled the same way. But Zedekiah is a prophet of Baal. And these 400 prophets, they are false prophets. Now, what are the characteristics of false prophets? Very, uh, I want to be very brief on this because I want to spend most of my time on characteristics of, of the true prophets. But for uh, the false prophets... To be a prophet was simply a job. It was their livelihood. They were in the employ of the king. And so Jezebel and Ahab had all of these prophets of Baal. They were on the payroll. 
and they could retire on a government uh, you know, retirement benefit check, you see. It was their, their job. Uh, and uh, they were expected to endorse or give religious sanction to the policies of the administration. That is, after all, uh, the people who pay the piper get to call the tune, right? And that's why uh, these false prophets never disagreed with the king. They always encouraged him in his own intentions and uh, tried to build up this, uh, this sense of uh, patriotic spirit, and, uh, and that was the extent of it. Now you say, well, how did they come to their, dis- their discoveries as spokesmen for their false gods? Well, they used a variety of techniques, sometimes artificial stimuli, uh, wine-induced trances, uh, were you self-flagellation? Remember how the prophets of Baal, when they were calling on Baal to send fire down from heaven, they cut themselves with stones, and that fits right into their teaching, because of course Baalism was a fertility cult, and they literally worshipped the the reproductive capacity in nature, and that's why they sac- some of the some of the fertility cults sacrificed the firstborn child, because the firstborn child is the product of your fertility. And if you sacrifice that to the god of fertility, then you can expect more, see? Uh, and cutting your body showed blood, you see. And, that, and, and blood is the symbol of life. And so you're sort of uh, surrendering the, your, the, your very existence to this god of fertility. And that's why they had temple prostitutes, because uh, for the male worshiper to have a sexual relationship before these fertility idols was the highest form of a sacrament because that's the nearest one can get to the reproductive or the fertility dimension. And that's why they worship sacred cows and golden calves. And that's what the real problem of the Israelites were. They were really adopting this fertility cultism of Egypt that worshipped the Nile and had uh, uh, golden bulls. In fact, a little golden bull was recently discovered by an archaeologist again. And they had sacred bulls, you know. And when we were visiting in Cairo, we went to this, this place, this burial site for the sacred bulls. And they have these great big um, burial containers that once contained the, the sacred bulls. And today you have the sacred cows in India yet, which Mahatma Gandhi said is the central fact of a Hindu unity, a sacred cows. Why a cow all the time? Well, because that cow is that gentle creature that gives its manure to make the plants grow and its milk to make babies grow. And so the cow has come in pagan fertility cultism to best represent the reproductive fertility capacities of reality. And that's what these kinds of worship uh, people were. And so self-flagellation, or cutting themselves up, uh, is, a, is a powerful way of trying to influence that fertility, that fertility god. Sometimes music was used. Astrology, and that's why I think uh, uh, astrology today is, is rather popular. You know, uh, you have these articles in every newspaper across the country, don't you, uh, to see what your particular astrological schema should be for that day. Um, they, had, they, they watched flights of birds. They had sacred chickens. Do you realize that in Rome, 
powerful Rome. The Senate of Rome never came to a final decision until they called the prophets in to tell them how they read the, the entrails, the excretions of sacred chickens. When, you see, that's, that's what paganism is, you see. So, and they cast lots too, didn't they? Which are something like uh, Mark Stones. To, well, they, of course, they made sure, they manipulated all of this to make sure they helped the, the person in, uh, in, in power. So the false prophets, like false prophets today, and it's the first time making something of an application, uh, go along. Go along with the practices and the morality and the lifestyle of the general pagan secular society. And that's what bothers me so very, very much when I see um, radical feminism uh, uh, influencing well, I, at least now I'm speaking personally, uh, decisions of the general senate of my denomination. Uh, and uh, evolutionary theory, uh, obviously making its impact. Uh, you see, that's, that's that tendency again, the false prophecy tendency to get our inspiration and our direction from the environment, the secular environment, instead of patiently and humbly simply submitting to God's word. And if there are some issues about which we're not quite certain in the scripture, well then let's be patient. Let's not simply follow the model of the, of the, the world, but let's be patient until in God's providence maybe the appropriate insight from the scripture will finally be revealed. Because after all, the church of Jesus Christ didn't arise in our generation, so we benefit from the, from the insights of the historic Christian church, from Augustine on, uh, through the reformers and, and the like. And uh, the Holy Spirit is still actively involved, revealing his truth through the word today. So let's be patient and not simply change rules because, as one of my fellow pastors said, look, if a woman can be the prime minister of Great Britain and uh, India and... Uh, be senators and governors of our, of our, of our states and uh, run for vice president of the United States, unsuccessfully, but at least she was uh, nominated. Uh, why in the world can't they be elders in our churches? But you see, the answer is because we don't take our direction from the political order. We take it from the scriptures. So let's look into the scriptures and ask what is and what is not. But now I'm preaching and I've got to get away from that. Now, the characteristics of the canonical prophets. Okay? I, I have seven listed and I'll go through them as rapidly as I can. And maybe we'll just uh, reserve means of divine revelation to canonical prophets and the question, are there prophets today? Uh, the Lord willing for tomorrow morning. But let's look at the characteristics of canonical prophets. First of all, the canonical, if you want to call them true prophets, that's all right too. True, false, that's a good distinction. True prophets had a direct personal relationship with God. One whom God had taken into his confidence. I'm going to give you some quick references we're going to look at Zechariah close enough for three days. 
So let me take some references from elsewhere. First of all, Jeremiah 23, verses 16 to 18. There we read, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. False prophets again. They keep saying to those who despise me, Lord says, you will, not, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? That word counsel in Hebrew is sought. We would translate that S-O-D-H. That means the intimate confidant of the Lord. That's a characteristic of the true prophet. Was a intimate, did I say infinite? <laughs> intimate confidant of the Lord, one whom God has taken into his, uh, his very uh, confidence. Another example would be Amos chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. God tells them his special plans. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Uh, Moses is another example. You remember when Miriam and Aaron challenged his authority because Moses had married a black girl, a woman, an African, a, a, an Ethiopian woman, and he said, "Look, any any Israelite who may, does such a stupid thing, I think that was Moses' second wife, uh, has disqualified himself for leadership. Hasn't the Lord spoken to me and Aaron too?" says Miriam, and the Lord had to intervene and say, "Hey." I tell my truth to my people, but to Moses I speak in a special personal way. So that would be another example. Secondly, the prophetic office was a way of life, not just a job, see. He wasn't in the employ of some secular king. A prophetic office was a way of life sensitive in everyday experiences to the manifestation of God's word. The prophets were so sensitive to hear God speak. I wanted to give you another, an example again from Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. We read, The word of the Lord came to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree. I replied, the Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is...